Hi, and welcome to Just a GP. Today you're joined by Beck and Charlotte. And we've got our guest presenter today, Danielle McMullen. Danielle joins us to talk on an episode about leadership. And what I think we'll do is start with our highlight of the week. And then I'll let Danielle introduce herself and discuss a little bit about leadership in general practice. So who would like to take us away with their highlight of the week? Oh, that's a tantalising introduction. I will, I'll barge in and which will give Danielle a chance to put herself to how she'll present hers. I'm going to be really mean to and take two tips because I couldn't decide which one would come first. So this week I've had two things. One is I've just back from a week of working in the Philippines. I think I might have mentioned it on Just a GP, but I might not have. But one of my little sideline hobbies, so to speak, but it's not really a hobby because it takes up hours and hours, is I run a project, a health project in the Philippines. And that means I get to go twice a year to the Philippines with a group of medical students, doctors, dentists, and sort of support crew. So we actually had our biggest team ever, 41 people, 22 medical students, six dentists, no, seven dentists, six doctors plus me, so seven doctors, and a support crew. And yeah, totally exhausting, but amazing. So we actually saw just under 600 people did around about 1,500 health interventions. But one of the most exciting bits is an HPV project that we're doing. And there's a really high incidence of HPV there. And so we actually referred off 15 women who have early cancer and cancer, which have only been detected because of being able to do this project. So that's pretty exciting. Certainly changes on cervixes that you ever, well, I've ever seen in Australia, which is fortunate for our health system. And then just for me, the social thing, I joined a choir as a result of some of the well-being talks that we'd been doing because I know I love singing. And so I joined my community choir and we did a, a Christmas carols thing on Sunday night and it was awesome fun. Just, just, yeah, so much fun. So that's me. That sounds amazing, Charlotte. It's a fun adventure, but lots of hard work, I'm sure. Yeah, well, that's it. It's the, it's the leading part that really means that it's the hard work because you're on the entire time. You can't relate. That's another conversation. You, Danielle, have you got a highlight? Yeah. So I suppose, I mean, mine's not quite as exciting or specific, but um, I think, you know, my highlight of the week this week has just been the time of year and it reminded me as been the thank yous. And I think it's often this time of year that we remember to say thank you to each other a bit more. And so both kind of giving and receiving some of those this week, I've had a few patients or patients' families that are really challenging cases. And I know we've all got those patients who we work hard on all year and you're never quite sure if you've done enough or if they notice how hard you feel like you're working. But I've had a couple in the past week who've taken the time or their families had to just genuinely say thank you for the work that I've done. And that's always really nice to hear. And then also had the opportunity, we had our AMA staff Christmas party this week. And and that was a good opportunity to say thank you, particularly to our staff there who do stacks of work behind the scenes and and it's been a bit of a challenging year in many ways. Um, and so it was good just to be able to catch up with them and make it make sure that they know that we appreciate the work that they do. So it's just been a nice week for that type of thing. It is really lovely, isn't it? Having the 
time of year just to remember to say thank you. It's a really special extra thing to be able to do. Absolutely. And we, we probably don't do it as much as we should It do. always reminds me that we probably should give some positive feedback more often or say thank you. You know, often we're quick to put a nasty comment or a, more, a challenging comment on whether it's social media or if something's gone wrong, you're more, more likely to complain about it, I guess, than to um, to say thanks when something's gone well. So, yeah. I think my highlight of the week was actually this morning I um, participated in a workshop on interprofessional education at the University of Wollongong. So it was given by a group of lecturers from the university sounds really cool, from the Arctic University of Norway, called that because they're actually above the Arctic Circle. Cool is just a little bit of a clever word. I didn't even think that was a great pun. (laughs) And um, so they have a program there where they actually teach interprofessionally multiple different specialties, um, how to work together as teams, how to be essentially multidisciplinary teams through the university with the idea that when they come out of university, they're then a bit more aware of what everyone's roles are, what they can do, what they should be doing, how to refer and how to use each other. And it was really fascinating what they do and hopefully we can have a look at how we can implement even just a little bit of what they do into some teaching in some universities in Australia. So um, that sounds like such a good idea. It, it's I, I find a lot of stuff in medicine. We assumptions are made that we're all going to do really well in them, and I think working as a team is the classic. And yet, you know, in all other industries, there's a huge amount of work that gets put into teaching people how to be team players and understanding your role, whereas we just get dropped in and expect that we do it across all disciplines when we're all coming from things with different different angles and not always even understanding what skills each of us brings to the table. Exactly, or even just who everybody could, can be and are at the table. I think understanding roles is one part, but then understanding relationships and utility of other people is another as well. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens I guess because medicine is so competitive and it's very siloed to get into to begin with, it's quite a difficult space to then think interprofessionally. So we'll have to play around with a few ideas. I think you're right. I think we often fall into the trap of, as doctors, of trying to fix it and trying to be the one who does it. Um, And, you know, we use the word teamwork a lot but still at the end of the day and particularly probably in general practice the patient comes in to see us and we do the thing and then we send them out again whereas actually working together and handing off some of that um, workload or recognizing that other people have skills that we might not have and that we can't do everything for everyone is an interesting challenge in our profession I think. Oh goodness forbid might even be able to do it better that they can oh, on, provide. Yeah. They couldn't do it Anyway, so Danielle, um, I'd really like you to now just tell us a little bit about yourself and particularly as a GP and your leadership roles that you have. Yes, well, thank you for inviting me along. I must admit that I had the typical sort of imposter syndrome when you sent me the email and said you wanted me to talk about leadership because despite, I suppose, holding pretty 
formal leadership positions for at least the past six years or so. I don't know that I'd use that label, but thank you. And so I suppose sort of to introduce myself, I'm a a GP. I work in inner Sydney and sort of newly got my fellowship about three years ago. And aside from my clinical work where I see mainly younger people, fair bit of sexual health, women's health, family planning type work. I have a num- like have some non-clinical roles and recently most of that's been with the Australian Medical Association. So I've been part of that family for since my internship really and sort of worked my way through various roles there which we can talk more about if it's interesting and but now sit as the vice president of the state AMA here in New South Wales Um, and I'm also on the board of the federal AMA as well as the state one so I have a couple of governance roles there but also that kind of policy leadership role and that follows on from some roles I had there in doctor in training leadership when I was still in training so it's been quite a journey through how to you know, talk about doctor and training issues and then GP issues and really getting a seat at the table about that whole of health system policy type work, which I find really interesting. So, Danielle, t- t- um, d- just help me and other listeners, mm. those of us who don't understand the AMA system, because it is quite state and federally yeah. divided and, you know, how you get positions on one thing. It doesn't. I mean, I, I'm certainly not clear at all about how it all works. Everybody always tells me things. So tell me what is different about your role at national and how, because that you don't automatically get a role on the national board, do you, by being on the state? Is that correct? No, yeah. So the way it, so the Australian Medical Association is the, the professional organisation um, for all doctors, regardless of specialty and regardless of stage of training. And we would see our role for people who don't understand what the AMA is, is there to look after doctors, but also the broader health system and remembering that the patient is at the centre of our health system and healthcare. So while we're there to improve the system for the benefit of doctors, it's also for patients and Australians at large. What makes it complicated is that it is a federated structure. So the AMA has a federal office in Canberra and then each state has its own AMA as well. And they're separate businesses that work under the same brand. So that's why members may notice that their services are a little bit different around the country depending on which state AMA they belong to. They may have a little bit different kind of range of services available on an individual level, but a lot of the policy advocacy type work is done at a federal level and run through that office in Canberra. So each state and the federal body each have a board, a governance board that runs the business. And then most of them also have a have a council that helps drive the policy agenda, whether that's locally or on a federal level to help and various councils and committees to to do the grunt work of, of developing policy and responses to government or responses to other stakeholders to improve the health system. So that's kind of the structure of how it works. How you get involved depends on where you are and what your interest level is. So here in New South Wales, we've got a sort of easiest point of entry for any of the, the training 
people listening. We've got a doctors in training committee that's really open to any doctor in training to come along and listen to issues around the state. And we really are encouraging more GP registrars to join in on that. Or also we've got a presence on Facebook to try and engage around GP training issues because we know that often the hospital trainees have louder voices and kind of and take up a bit of the airspace there. So really actively trying to get more GP registrars involved. And then you can get involved in other sort of committees and councils as time goes on. And a bit like many things, as I'm sure you know, Charlotte, once you're, and, and Beck, once you're in, you get kind of sucked in and what starts as a small role with one issue. And before you know it, you're really in the family and being tapped on the shoulder for a variety of roles if you want to be. Yeah, which is fantastic in terms of just, you know, having having a supportive mentoring sort of uh, way of being able to take you through that. So, so explain to us too then what by having a role on the state, how does that differ from that, the role that you play nationally in terms of how would you see them as being for you personally as a leader? Yeah, so for me personally, they are fairly different. I think my state AMA, I I know a lot better. You see them all the time. I'm in the office more often. Um, I'm on the board here, but I've also been involved for many years. So I started out attending doctor and training committee meetings, ended up being the chair of the doctor and training committee here in New South Wales for some years. And that did feed up to being also at the table of the Federal Council of Doctors in Training. So there's a bit of overlap there. And then now in New South Wales, as vice president, I do get lots of emails, um, but no, it's mainly the there's the board kind of governance role, but also that policy work and just the day-to-day issues that the AMA will face. Whereas then on the federal level, I sit on the board, which is a governance board, um, and it's about running the business, but they also have a federal council, which I'm not part of. So in terms of the federal policy side of things, for the AMA as the whole, federally, I don't have much to do with, you know, input of that day to day. It's more that governance business headspace that I'm in when I'm at the federal level, except of course, when I I also sit on the council of general practice federally, and that's driven. There's representatives from each state that attend that. So if you're on your state council of general practice, which is often easier to access, and if anyone's interested in joining that, you know, suggest they contact their AMA about how to be involved. Then there's reps from each state that go to the federal council of general practice meetings where issues are sometimes reactive in terms of government policy that's changed. They'll, the staff at the AMA will come back to that group of GPs and make sure that there's input from us as to whether we agree or disagree with upcoming changes. Or also there's, you know, there's a proactive policy plan about where do we see general practice heading over the next 5, 10, 20 years? And how can we, as the AMA, with pretty significant political influence when it comes to talking about health, the the politicians do tend to at least ask the AMA what we think. So it's a good avenue to be able to drive change there and to try and make sure that at least some of what the politicians do is sensible and clinically relevant. Oh, well, given that we know that that's never the case, um, what what I'd love to know is how, what difference do you think you've been able to make? Because you've obviously been there for a long time and it's obviously been engaging for you. So where have been the 
the sort of those touch points which really where you feel like your voice has been listened to and you've yeah, been able to make some changes. Things that really stand out to me as highlights where I've been quite proud of my involvement in an organization. And one of them was being part of this shift in culture within the AMA to be more responsive to both our younger voices or training voices and also gender equity change. So I've, I think there is this kind of long-held belief that the AMA is a bunch of old white men that sit around and talk about fancy cars. And I must say that that's never the the situation that I felt like I was in, but I was the first doctor in training to be formally appointed to my state board. So there had been other doctors in training that happened to get onto the board through the normal mechanisms. But in my time as the doctor in training chair with our state President Brian Aller at the time, there was a real push to recognize that our doctors in training do have a voice that should be heard and skills and capacity to really feed into the the organization. And so we created a position for a doctor in training to be nominated to the board. Um, And so I was the first one of those in New South Wales, which was exciting and, you know, stayed on the board beyond my training term. But being part of that change was I thought important and I was able to feed into that. There are some times when I'm still one of few women around the table, but I've been really glad to see that over the past six, 10 years, however long I've been around, there are more and more women being involved um, even at the really senior leadership levels in the organization. And I think just by being there and encouraging other women to take part, that that's been another way I've been able to feed back. So in terms of my participation in the organization itself that's been I've been really proud of being involved there in terms of an issue like one of the highlights this year was being able to be part of the abortion law reform stuff here in New South Wales so for those listening in other states maybe New South Wales finally got around to trying to decriminalize abortion earlier this year and that was a really challenging campaign but really exciting thing to be a part of with great teamwork between organisations. We sort of touched on it a little bit before, but as doctors, I think individually, we always think that we're the one who can do the job. And even as organisations, I think we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that our organisation is the only one who can achieve something. Whereas this was an issue where we managed to work really well with RANSCOG, the College of ONG, some of the family planning organisations and really rallied and came together as one unified voice for health. And, And it was just a really positive group to be a part of. And one time where it's a funny thing about leadership, I think I ended up being the face of a lot of our talk about that, but I certainly wasn't the only one working on it. So it's a funny feeling to be the one that people are congratulating or saying thank you to, or you know, acting like you were the leader in a particular issue when I know, and hopefully all the people I was working with know that without the whole team, it would not have been anywhere near as successful. As an AMA member, over the past really three to five years, there has been a noticeable optic change in the gender at the at least the visible leadership. And that's been a really nice thing to see. And yes, I think I agree with you. Some of the perceptions are that there are still quite heavy in the male leadership, but 
lots of really passionate females starting to move up. Exactly. Really nice to be able to notice from afar as well. Great. Thank you for that. That was really appreciated. And it, it is, it's that, you know, just as you say, being there is often one of the most important things, particularly as a, a, a woman, to be able to make sure that those sort of points of view when the male table has been fairly strongly and the more women that are around, I think the more women come. It's surprising how much active management that takes. We talk a lot about gender equity and if you just put women there, more will come. And I think sometimes that's true like a a degree of it is more women will put their hands up but it's also going out and tapping shoulders and thinking of people and um, we're now reviewing our constitution and things as well at the state level to go look how can we better structure our councils or committees and to try and increase our diversity And, and we know that means more than just gender but you've got to start somewhere and if we can at least improve our gender equity in terms of councils and committees can we then hopefully be better on things like rural representation and ethnic diversity and and other uh, marginalised groups. I'm glad you talked about the tapping on the shoulder, though, because I think that that is actually, for women, a very powerful thing. Because you, you also talked about the, uh, the feeling that, you know, you the imposter syndrome issue. And I think for women, that's a much more common assumption that we make, that we are we aren't that person and that we're no more special than anybody else and are underskilled and, you know, might not actually bring value to the table. And so the power of actually having the tap on the shoulder and encouragement from your peers and or mentors to say, come and join us, we really value what you have to say is an extraordinarily powerful way of increasing the numbers of of good voices to to, to join in and that, I don't I mean that's not just for women I'm sure that that there are men who are like that too but we it's certainly in the, the college and the RACGP we've been seeing that I mean in New South Wales we've been actively tapping shoulders haven't we Beck and it is it's it's a it's a great way and it's really meant that we now have far more women involved than than there are men so we now have to sort of make sure that we do keep a balanced view on who gets to be able to have a say. Yeah, I think it really is about thinking who's around the table, who might you need. And even outside of organisations, people who are working in group practices and, you know, you've got one GP maybe in your clinic who tends to be a bit quieter or isn't being as involved or seems a bit shy about getting involved in some of the practice activities it's just remembering to reach out and if you think that they've got a particular skill that they could bring in, finding ways to use those skills so that everyone's contributing as best they can and being encouraged to do so. Um, I'd like to ask you particularly, Danielle, why it was that you initially got involved in leadership and why you've continued to be involved, what you feel is motivating you to keep going. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think part of it is probably personality. Like I think looking back even, you know, through high school, I was, I wasn't school captain, but I was a prefect. I kind of like being involved in stuff in, at college, I was sort of president of our residential college. I think somewhat selfishly, I like to know what's going on. I'm a bit nosy and kind of like to have a finger in every pie and see 
what's happening. So personally, I find it quite rewarding to be involved in bigger groups and and to know how things are run and, and how it all works behind the scenes. So I think that keeps me going and often is what gets me involved because uh, I, I do like to think a bit bigger than just my individual clinic room. In terms of how I got involved with the AMA, it was a bit of a shoulder tap issue um, or thing. I remember turning up to my intern orientation O-week type thing and Fiona Davies is the CEO here in New South Wales of the AMA came and presented and said what it is they do. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. It's I kind of like to be on committees. I'm one of those weird, boring people who likes to go to meetings. Um, and she said there's, I had a chat with her afterwards and she mentioned the doctors in training committee that had meetings and so I thought oh yeah I'll turn up and see what they're doing and it was one of those things I turned up to enough meetings and was a recognized face and we were at a women in medicine event one day and Fiona again came up to me and she said oh you know Danielle I've seen you at a number of meetings so you know now that you're in like you'll be we might need you to do some stuff for us can you do you think you might be able to chair this meeting in someone's absence or could you come along and represent us at another sort of stakeholder forum? So it it was someone taking the time to notice that I was interested and then encouraging me to be more involved that got me involved in the first place and then I've stuck around since then. But part of it is personality and liking meetings, I think. I don't think there's anything wrong with being that type of personality that wants to be involved and liking meetings. I think it's quite an attractive thing to be able to say that this is something I'm passionate about and I want to be involved and the best way to make change is actually to be involved and help drive that change and that's sounds like something that's resonating with Yeah, and about that being inside the tent. Um, I think there's a lot of talk about leadership and whether our leaders make decisions that we agree with or not and and disagreements hard it is it's tricky particularly if you put yourself out there and people have contradicting views it's hard not to take that personally sometimes I think it's a bit easier sometimes when you're part of an organization and at the end of the day you sometimes have to say just what you know the what the organization is saying but even then there's always contradicting views out there and it is that can be challenging but at least if you're inside the tent you can there's a voice that you can try and drive change whereas yelling and screaming from the outside doesn't always get things to to happen so I think being something in on it it helps yeah I'm a I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you I mean I've always taken the the viewpoint that uh, if if I don't agree with something, there's no point in complaining from the outside. Get up and do something. And really, I mean, that's why I've been involved because, you know, I'm absolutely of the philosophy that we can do better at what we do. And if that's the case, then let's get in there and find out what are the ways we can do better and let's try it out. And, you know, and it's fun. You meet some great people as well as, I mean, I suppose I've never thought of it as being inside the tent, but I certainly hear that expression. But it's more about just being there and having the opportunity to to have your say. And I also, it was interesting your thing about that, you know, the discussions. I mean, I often describe GPs as like that we're a bit like 
feral cats. And I say that not in a disparaging way, but in a way of saying, well, most of the time we, we all do have fairly strong opinions about things. We feel really strongly about healthcare and we feel very strongly for our patients. And there's a mass of different opinions about it. So it's never going to be easy to get one opinion. And so you you do have to sort of have take some stance at, well, I need to go forward with something and not everyone's going to be happy. But, you know, if this is actually about improving health for our patients and hopefully having it with the GPs having a say, then that's where we need to start. Exactly. And I think it's Leadership in general practice in particular is such a challenge because of that. It's such a broad church. People practice in many different ways and are all genuinely trying to do a great job and often are doing a great job, but with different practice styles, different structures. It's just, it's a really challenging beast to try and rein in and create policy around. But as you said, we all want to be better. There's certainly ways our health system could improve. And it's a real challenge for all the organisations in this space to try and navigate that journey and to try out new things, obviously in a safe way without it blowing up the whole system and and having a go at doing things differently, which again, I think is something that doctors as a whole probably struggle with sometimes people in general people don't like change and yeah, I don't we're think not doctors anymore don't like change um so no. the ideas of you know these what seems like big organizations coming in and and proposing change uh, we then have to remember that behind that there's individuals you know all of us sit at tables and hopefully have contributed to the ideas coming forward and so it's just about now finding ways for more people to be involved in the input so I think in terms of how is leadership changing this century and into the future is that I think that the general public or the general member wants to have more say without necessarily having to be as involved time-wise as we are. Um, And so I think we've got to find ways as organisations to hear those voices and feed them in when we're then making our bigger decisions. So it's, it's, I think that's one of our big challenges for the future. Yeah, it's, it's how do you achieve member engagement without having, well, I mean, it's the, the mm. challenge. How do you achieve member engagement, as you say, no. try and meet yeah. everybody's needs, which you're never going to be able to do at the bottom line, but ensure that the, the, the certainly the vast majority get heard and it's not just the the, the noisy majority my, minority yep. rather um because it's usually That's the it. you know very much smaller numbers who are noisy I had a really big light bulb moment about the need for disagreement and debate last week i was at the um, company directors course which is an amazing course and will, will be my resource of the week so just putting dibs on that now and just a great they course. so emphasised how important it was to listen to those small voices and bring the debate to the table and actually that it's such a necessity for a board and a group to do. And I don't think I'd actually clicked before. I've always been someone who, oh, you might not believe me, doesn't really enjoy a fight, but now I guess I see how important it is and at a leadership role how important allowing all those voices or encouraging all those voices to debate and 
disagree are and I guess it's a whole new value that I hadn't realised before. It's a good point. Sometimes it's not about having the argument. It's actually about allowing the questions to be asked and to, to actively question why. You know, what what's going on here? Why are we doing this? What's the, you know, give me the evidence for it rather than just either accepting or saying, I don't like it, but, you know, doing that exploratory understanding. Exactly. Or even that one person saying, I don't like it and I'm not sure why, but then allows the questions and the exploration to find out why. And I think allowing time for some of those discussions, it's hard. And as you said, it's challenging when there's a bit of questioning or disagreement and things but if we don't do it we just end up in that group think space where we think we're amazing because we all agree with each other and it's all very easy um, <laughs> but it probably doesn't move the issues forward in as wholesome a way because you need to have considered your contradicting viewpoints or as you said Charlotte questioning things and, and taking that time to reflect on the question properly before jumping in and answering it, which I think is becoming more of a challenge in this quick space. You know, there's a 24-hour news cycle and everyone's tweeting this in the middle of that and it's like there's a lot of pressure to move and act quickly and sometimes you just need to pause and step back and reflect. I remember listening to um, Julia Gillard speak some years ago and that was her biggest point from her leadership journey and her role as the prime minister and things was wishing she had spent more time just taking even 10 minutes every day to step back and think and reflect about what she'd done that day what she was planning to do in the next you know short and medium term because you just get so caught up in making a decision and talking about it quickly that it's hard to remember to slow down a little. Oh, well, that nicely fits in with the whole mindfulness stuff, isn't it? And just, yeah, being able to actually sit back and reflect, reflective learning. Uh, we can all do that better. So you said one of my favourite buzzwords there, which is um, time and slowing things down. And I guess the other thing which I was hoping you could touch on is how you balance it all, how you work clinically as a GP and hold multiple leadership roles and how you find essentially time and balance to give them both the time that they need? Yeah, look, I think sometimes I do it well and sometimes I fail miserably. Um, there's, I think I'm lucky in a way that I don't have kids. I know that that you know, takes uh, a lot of extra time that I don't know that I'd have at the moment, but I've got other family responsibilities and stuff that I still manage to somehow fit in as well. And there are, there's times when it just seems to work. I work four days a week clinically and I really value having my midweek day off. So I've got a Wednesday as my non-clinical day. I try not to call it my day off because then I think people... Your golf day. Yeah. <laughs> I think then the rest of the world just thinks, if you're like, oh, you've got Wednesdays off, your life's really easy because you only work four days. Whereas I've sold it to myself in that I need that day to either do some of the non-clinical work, catch up on emails and AMA kind of business, or actually sometimes just sleep or go get my hair done or go shopping or kind of life admin things because a lot of the AMA work is in the evenings and weekends and kind of just gets slotted around other things. So as I said, I at the moment 
it seems to be working okay. But I remember last year there was a time where I must have just taken on a little bit more than I could really chew and felt like I was doing 20 things poorly instead of 10 things well. And so I'm now trying to be more conscious of that and saying no when I can't fit an extra thing in because I think the temptation is that particularly with the shoulder tapping that, oh, well, if someone has said that I'd be good at it or they want me to do it, maybe I should just do that as well and recognizing that we we aren't superhuman. And so there are times where you need to step back, work out what really has to be done and and what do you need to say no to um, to keep your sanity and still making time for friends and family and things that you enjoy because um, then you tend to have a bit more energy in the tank. Absolutely agree. And I'm definitely resonating with how often on this podcast we end up talking about well-being, even if it's not been the topic of the podcast but it really is something that comes back no matter what we're talking about is the importance of specifically what you said is giving yourself time to actually do the things that you need to do without feeling that you should be elsewhere and I really liked your tip of saying no as well which I think is something that I could be better at doing (laughs) yeah I think we all could from time to time, but yeah. Absolutely. I think um, that should probably move us through to our pearl of the week. Um, I've already hinted at what my pearl of the week is going to be, which is the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Essentially, the pearl is that they've got wonderful courses and wonderful resources online on their website. If you can get to a course, even one of their one day or online ones, they're incredibly just just good. <laughs> the knowledge and the people that do them have enormous experience and the people that go along to do them are doing things that I had never heard about before, but all in a similar leadership space and in different roles and doing different things that are just incredible. And I learned such a huge amount from one week that I didn't even know existed in the world and it will absolutely change the way that I do some things. And, yeah. And isn't it great to learn about something that's not medicine? I like. I loved doing that course and it was a fair bit of work, but it was so good to just learn governance skills and leadership yeah. skills and financial yeah. things that just yeah. aren't medical. It was, it was great. Agree, one hundred percent too, and and all the ongoing courses that they do are really worthwhile too. Um, and it is great to do something that's outside the medical field, but actually impacts the way in which you can make a difference within the medical field. Yeah, their networking things are quite good too. I went to a women in AICD kind of networking speed dating event, I think they called it, and it was I thought it would be really awkward because it's not generally my scene but it was great you met these fantastic women as you said from doing all sorts of different roles and everyone was really engaged and happy to talk and no, it was a really brilliant evening so I'd encourage people to yeah go to some of those things if they're a member. Cool so your turn for a tip Danielle. Yeah so my tip was back to being a bit more clinical but with all the and it's probably a bit slow now I'm a bit behind the uptake but all the changes in the eating disorder kind of care plan space I had been flying blind I've got a couple of 
those severely unwell patients. And I know many of us probably only have one or two. So it's a bit tricky with the changes that came out to know where to go with them. But the Inside Out website, insideoutinstitute.org.au, just had a lot more resources than I was expecting, including a care plan template thing that has all the special scores that you need. And there's a fair bit of management advice stuff on that website as well. So it was, I know for a single issue, but one that I'm sure many of us find challenging if unless we do a lot of it. And so it was just a handy resource for those very unwell patients. Eating disorders. And can I also add, Danielle, that they are running a webinar at the end of January for to upskill GPs as well on on how to access all of the the resources for patients. And so, if you go, I'm sure if you go to the Inside Out website, you'll be able to see the invitation to attend the webinar. Excellent. And if people can't actually attend it at the time that it's scheduled for, it's a Tuesday lunchtime at the end of January, it'll be recorded to be able to upload. That's good to know. So my tip is something completely different. I'm particularly interested in social prescribing and the social determinants of healthcare. And one meeting I was at this week, we've been sort of talking about that. And I found out about a a tool or a sort of a, a thing that I didn't know about called Social Progress Index, which is some work that UNSW is doing in partnership with some other people. And it's worth going to its, so it's called Social Progress Index. And basically, it is about the index of being able to know where a different communi- community rates in terms of social progress and and what they're able to access for their communities. And so it's a tool so that we can actually understand what the basic needs are of the people that we're looking after and looks at things like food security, access to housing, etc. So and I just think it's a really good thing for us to know and understand what our community is looks like on those social determinants. Great resources. I'm always impressed by all these things that I haven't heard about before, which I can then use. Thank you so much for coming along and talking to us, Danielle. The podcast will absolutely be up before the end of January, so people can have a listen along to the Inside Out webinar. And I hope you both have a lovely festive season. Thank you so much for having me on and for the chat. And uh, yeah, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Yes. Farewell, everybody. Have a great 2020.